I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art and society. I'm Sarah, Editorial Assistant at Prospect, and today I'm joined by Samir Rahim, who edits our Arts and Books section, to discuss the art of Stonehenge after a new exhibition at the British Museum has shed light on the monument's creators and their beliefs. Around 5,000 years ago, a circular bank known as a henge first appeared on Salisbury Plain followed around 500 years later by the concentric stone circles that we recognise as Stonehenge today. Since then, as Samir writes in his piece, over the centuries the meaning of Stonehenge has been in the eye of its beholder. Geoffrey of Monmouth thought it a giant's ring conjured by Merlin. John Aubrey, an antiquarian who surveyed the site in the late 17th century, believed it was a temple for Druid priests. Some historians have even suggested that the building of Stonehenge was the prehistoric equivalent of a corporate away day, as at a time of major social upheaval, constructing the monument could have been a means of building unity. For a column in the recent issue of Prospect, Samir went to the British Museum to review the exhibition. So, first of all, Samir, thank you so much for joining us. I have to begin by making a confession. I'm probably one of the few people in the UK who's never actually been to Stonehenge. Briefly, for the very ignorant like myself, can you explain what the monument is and what made you decide to write about the exhibition? Well, you may not have visited it, but you may well have gone past it on the A344 if you're ever going down to Cornwall or the southwest. Um, uh, on a holiday because I've gone past it many a time it's usually traffic choked one slows down as if it's some kind of accident and it is a very beautiful scene and it is amazingly close to the road in fact there's the heel stone which is where over which the sun on the solstice actually comes down is literally next to the road but no indeed indeed I have visited on not on a very sunny day but it still retains its sort of grandeur and wonder of course you can't actually go inside and be among the stones and touch them and carve your name on them uh, which is probably a good thing uh, as people once did in the past except of course on the on the solstice um, except there was a apart from a friend of mine who really wanted to go in there and so what he did was he, he put on a high-vis jacket uh, carried a clipboard and he just walked straight through and looked as if he was doing something terribly important he managed to he managed to get away with it so it's a place that is definitely in our in our imaginations as much from uh 
I don't know, probably Asterix uh, uh, stories as, as anything else. And there's the famed uh, stories about the Druids as well, which this exhibition and all sensible archaeologists will tell you has no basis in historical reality at all. There were no Druids at, at Stonehenge. But it has always retained its sense of um, mystery. Even now, I was reading to prepare for this exhibition, a book by Rosemary Hill uh, called Stonehenge, which is a wonderful little book, very beautifully written. And that was, I think, about 10 or 12 years old. But then going to the exhibition itself, you realise that the theories about what it was for and who built it have subsequently changed. So the, the story of what it is and who it's for and who built it and all those things is very much a, a continuing question. And actually you wrote in your piece that the monument's meaning shifted even within its own very early lifetime. Um, can you tell me a bit more about those early theories or those early uses of Stonehenge in the prehistoric times? Yeah, so we have all the sort of theories since it was built. You know, it's a druidical uh, a place of sacrifice. Some people thought, Geoffrey of Monmouth thought that Merlin had transported it from Ireland using his magical skills. My favourite theory was that it was some kind of megalithic spa where people would go for healing. But uh, those changing of meanings were actually, as you say, in the lifetime of the of the building itself and this exhibition at the British Museum does make that really clear. So first of all I mean a basic question why is it called Stonehenge? So a henge is actually a circular bank or a ditch and that appeared on Salisbury Plain about 5,000 years ago Uh, and on the inner ring of that ditch were made 56 holes which are now called the Aubrey holes named after the antiquarian John Aubrey. And these were probably filled with bluestones hauled from a quarry about 180 miles away in Wales, in Western Wales. And these bluestones were probably already sacred in some ways. Certainly they're kind of, they're very cool looking if you if you see them. There's an example of one in the exhibition itself. You have to look quite closely to see how blue they are. And they're more sort of grey to my eye, but I'm, I'm untrained. Um, they're sort of they're made of spotted dolerite and, and apparently had some kind of spiritual significance. Um, in the exhibition and when people talk about Stonehenge, the phrase apparently had some spiritual significance is used an awful lot. And what that basically means is people thought it was important and we don't know why. So the, so the blue stones are brought into the centre of the circle and the gigantic columns of sarsen stone, which actually came from nearby Marlborough Downs, were set up in the sort of doorway shape, uh, a trilithon shape. Um, so it's almost as if that the stones that we think of as the most famous ones are, are almost like the walls guarding the, the sort of blue stones within. So actually, when we think of Stonehenge, the most important bit or the most significant or interesting bit that we see and the most famous bit from everywhere from sort of Geoffrey uh, of Monmouth to Spinal Tap that's not actually the bit that was the most sacred, which I found really, really interesting. Um, or at least it changed during um, during the lifetime of uh, of, it, of its own of its own building. And was that something that you found out for the first time at this exhibition? Yes, it was. Yeah, I mean the exhibition it's about Stonehenge, but it's about much more than that. But they, they do give you um, quite a good sort of ABC guide to how this was all set up in the first place. Um, they have some quite interesting theories about what the Aubrey holes were then used for, because then they, 
they found grave remains of various different people and the animals in the Aubrey hole. So it was probably more like a graveyard or a sort of sacred space, again, sacred space again, a kind of slightly spooky area for rituals to do with the dead rather than, um, uh, you know, a spa, as, as, some others, as some others put it. And for me, that makes quite an interesting comparison because when we talk about Stonehenge, it's not just that um, those stones and those objects, it's also the places around it, which are also really significant. We have a really interesting description of a place called Durrington Walls and uh, Woodhenge. I don't know if anyone's have visited Woodhenge, which is not too far away from Stonehenge, but uh, about 3,000 years ago, so in the sort of lifetime of Stonehenge, Durrington Walls is this... Uh, it was essentially a sort of like it's a village really and apparently it was about 4,000 people lived there which is an amazing number uh, uh, if you think about it um, and Woodhenge as you'd imagine is basically they found these holes which were circular and it had wood in it rather than and stone and the theory goes that this is where there was feasting and there's a lot of sort of dead pig remains of people eating and sort of maybe and so the theory goes again you know this is the place where people lived and this was the sort of uh, life filled um, uh, area and just down the way was Stonehenge which is more associated with spirits and ghosts and and all the rest of it. Oh that's fascinating and makes a lot of sense that kind of the joyous place would be near the village and the place where you go and you have that sanctity and you have that separation, protect and celebrate the dead. It's, it's not that different to the way that we conceive of things and, and live today. My next question was just talking about the fact that the exhibition spans a period from 4000 to 1000 BC, a time that saw a great deal of change, upheaval um, and connection. Um, what kind of characterises the times when Stonehenge was built? Is it difficult for us to imagine that prehistoric time? It is hard to imagine because you're thinking a lot about people who lived a very long time ago. Immediately what we like to do is to think, well, how were they like us? You know, what, what were the things that we can say, oh, that's no, that's just like us. That's what I just did. <laughs> uh, but that's really natural and normal. And this exhibition does, a, does do a bit of that. But I always find it more interesting to find out how different they were to us and try and really make that leap of the imagination into another worldview, I suppose. And early on in the exhibition, they have a really interesting exhibit, which is the body of a woman, which was discovered in Germany. And she was buried with the roe deer ant and, and animal tusks. And they show that as part of a headdress. She was evidently a very special person in some ways and the forensics have studied her bones and they showed that they were sort of malformed at the bottom of the skull which means she was likely to have had fits or some sort of perhaps trance-like experiences, double vision. She was most likely a shaman of some kind so associated with half-human, half-animal world. Again, it's very, very different from our our worldview where humans are quite individuated from animals but there was a sort of slipping and sliding between the two worlds and if there weren't druids at Stonehenge then they probably were the exhibition uh, doesn't say for sure but it speculates were sort of shamanic religion and rituals out there as well um, I didn't think I'd be thinking this when I went to the exhibition but one of the most amazing things about it are the axe heads I don't know about you but whenever I go to an exhibition 
it tends to be the pottery and axe heads and potsherds and things like that. You take a little glance at it and then you move on to the gold and the really cool stuff that comes later. And there is a lot of cool gold and we'll get to the, get to that at the end. Yeah. But these axe heads are absolutely stunning. I mean, they're actually the best thing in the exhibition. They're exhibited on a wall and are lit quite uh, beautifully. They're just absolutely stunning, polished as hard as an egg. And there's an amazing stone which they have at the beginning which is the stone on which um, the other stones were were carved as it were and they've got the sort of grooves in there where somebody must have spent hours and hours and hours shaping these um, smooth axe heads and they use spit and they use sand to create it the amount of hours it must have taken to create one of these things is absolutely astonishing and these had a practical purpose of course because they were used to clear uh, grass and clear trees and um, from which you know places like Sten Stonehenge could be built um, but they were also a tool but also a precious object sometimes made from sacred stone so in a way they're introducing you to sort of mini Stonehenges as it were as you, before you before you get to the sort of um, the models of the of, of the real thing and later on in the exhibition you find out that they in, in they dug someone up who near to Stonehenge who was a metal worker of some kind and he had with him was buried with him one of these um, axe heads these beautiful axe heads uh, and that axe head at the time of his burial was already 1000 years old so wow. the idea that an object could be so precious so valuable so much effort could have been made into forming it that it stays living for a thousand years and probably even in use for that long that for me is just that is one of the big differences between our worldview uh, our throwaway society and a society in which you really could not throw throw these things away so the person who was buried with the arrow was not the person who's made it had already survived and been passed down for a thousand years before that yeah i mean look if i was being sentimental i said it passed down from his family and his father gave it to him and but i mean you know who knows he could if he must have gone through different people been stolen taken away um so we just we just don't know but all we know is that it was considerably old it was old even when this person was alive wow um, another object that you mentioned in the piece was a black mace. Yes, yeah, so this was found in the Aubrey holes um, and it's about the size of a tennis ball and it's etched with these banded swirls and the stone actually came from the Hebrides. Uh, one of the themes of the exhibition is that um, it links Stonehenge with sites in Scotland, um, sites in the Hebrides, sites in Ireland as well, um, which were all sort of, you know, in a way connected through uh, in prehistoric times. Now you asked me what it's for, and you know it's called a mace, but really no one knows what it's for. And that's again one of the, you know, it could be decorative, it could be useful. Um, there's a whole cabinet of these which they present. The, the black one is the sort of most special and probably the most famous one, but there are other ones as well. And you feel you can almost pluck one out and sort of throw it to a friend or something and the heaviness of it. One of the things is you, you're desperate to sort of hold these objects in your hand, to feel the weight of them. And that's one of the most um, tantalising things about them. And then what's been described as kind of the central piece of the exhibition, the Sea Henge, 
could you explain a little bit more about that wooden sea henge, what it is and why it's there? So I talked about wood henge before, and sea henge is in a way somewhat similar. Um, it's found found in Norfolk, and they've sort of reconstructed it within the, the site of the uh, exhibition itself. It was evidently some kind of funerary monument. So you'd have in a circle these wooden posts, and in the middle was an upturned oak tree, um, with the sort of its roots spreading out and and on top of that you would have had someone being buried or cremated and uh, the illustrations that they present are certainly quite evocative i thought it was presented in the exhibition they didn't quite have enough space for it it's not in a circle to be honest you could almost walk past it and it looks a bit like a few sort of bits of old wood in the in the ground sorry to be flippant there but they haven't quite made it as evocative as it as it could have been i think um, you know, the idea of the upturned oak tree, the Norse mythology of the old oak trees is very resonant of that. Uh, and made me also think of, in a very different context, Zoroastrian Towers of Silence, which are still in use today, particularly in Bombay, where um, people are put on the top of these towers and um, uh, uh, after they've died. The creator of the exhibition, Neil Wilkin, did say in, a, in his speech um, at the opening that we did ask English Heritage if they could bring Stonehenge down, but they said it wasn't possible. And of course, that is the difficulty with the whole exhibition in that it's talking about somewhere that they can't really um, evoke uh, uh, in reality, as it, as it were. And they tried to do that with, um, uh, with Seahenge. It doesn't quite come off. And this may have been me reading between the lines of your piece. And I think you have actually just mentioned a different favourite object. Um, but in your your piece, I I assumed that your favourite object on display was the shimmering Shropshire Sun pendant. What did you like about this object, and what did the sun mean for the people who built Stonehenge? So, the exhibition progresses through materials. So you've got wood, which is associated quite broadly with sort of homely object, and and then you've got stone which is sort of the monumental material um, which is very difficult to um, shape but it also lasts for a very very long time and then at the last bit you've got metal so particularly gold and once you start getting metal work and gold work it things change and in a way what's interesting and um, about the exhibition is it shows how Stonehenge became sort of unfashionable a bit of a white elephant oh. no one really knew what to do with it anymore because the 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 function that it served was starting to be replaced uh, by metal objects so you know what is that function some kind of astronomical function looking at the sun obviously we know the association famous association with the solstice measuring the heavens in some way if you think now um when you go to it at night um it, it, you know, there'll be all sorts of light pollution and cars and uh, lights and things like that. If you imagine being total darkness, the heavens, the stars would have been, in a way, as important a reflection of what's going on below as um, as above. So that conversation between the earth and the heavens is definitely something that Stonehenge does and did do extraordinarily. But I am getting to the pendant, don't worry. But the, um, so the object we think of as, as the central bit is the Nebra sky disc, which is made of bronze. And 
has a moon uh, and a sun, stars, and it's it's about the size of a shield if you can think of it in that way. Um, it's big. Yeah, it uh, is an object that you could sort of carry around and use to read the heavens by. So in a sense, you could put wow. yeah. So you could basically put Stonehenge in your pocket and carry it around with you. Um, so therefore Stonehenge became less of a sort of significant um, part of the landscape. And, and the final, final object is displayed in the final room, which is this sun-shaped pendant. And amazingly, it was found in Shropshire just in 2018 by tourists who, you know, this is the find of a, of a lifetime, really. It's quite small, you know, um, it's probably about two inches um, if that uh, and they've presented it really uh, beautifully I mean it sort of shimmers and just is absolutely sort of stunning when you see it and you can imagine that somebody putting it close to their skin would feel in some ways that the rays of the sun were close to them and for for, for us now of course but even more particularly during this era the sun was the thing that you know provided Heat obviously meant crops grew, um, meant that people could do things because at night there wasn't the kind of lighting that we have. Um, and so the idea that the special force of the sun could somehow be carried around with you, uh, that becomes a kind of development in the sort of spiritual aspect, what, what the exhibition is trying to get across. And having said earlier that Sea Henge isn't presented with particular brilliance uh, i think it the last object is done really really well so they have a setting sun and a rising sun projected onto the back of the final room so as you were going through it you see the sun rising and falling and that's quite a nice little touch but when you come to the pendant the way it's set up if you stand behind it so with your back to the exit of the exhibition and if you look there and if you just wait at certain moments the projected sun falls and and sort of melds with the golden pendant to become some kind of glowing orb and in that moment i think i think it's deliberate i mean it must be um maybe i'm, I'm imagining things um that moment they're sort of trying to imitate what it might mean to wait uh, for the sun to move and um bring together special sort of rays of power as it were into this into this pendant um, so that for me is like very special and it's worth seeing the exhibition just just for that really even though you're thinking you'll go to Stonehenge you'll learn about these enormous stone megalithic objects but actually it's the tiniest little sun pendant which was my favourite Ah, oh, that's that's lovely and this is a, a question that you can refuse to answer because it's quite one to put on the spot for you but it seems like although this this museum does reveal a lot about Stonehenge and about the people who built it and the time and the ideas it sounds like the the, the theories of of the mystery of what Stonehenge was built for still hasn't quite been solved do you have a, your own personal theory and if so has has the museum exhibition informed it well um I don't know I mean <laughs> all I Rosemary Hill makes the argument and I think it's quite interesting one that uh, finding out what actually happened is quite interesting, but as interesting as how people have perceived it over the the centuries. 
So the stories we tell about these objects change um, depending on who we are and what we, our preoccupations are. I mean, one of the things you learn is that this current site was actually 1964 was when it was, as it were, sort of put back in its place, you know, because things had fallen over and things weren't in position. Some of the stones have been sort of concreted. You know, it's a living monument. It's always being reshaped and, and, and reformed. Um, and the current meaning of it, the current debate over it, is the arguments over this £2 billion proposal for a dual carriageway and um, a tunnel that is still being uh, argued over. Um, you know, Grant Shapps is having debates with people and there's Save Stonehenge campaign. And if you do go to Stonehenge, you, one of the things you do realise is that the visitor facilities are not really adequate to um, a sort of a site of such, you know, well, so busy. And, you know, however it happened through history, that road is just, it, it does ruin it. I'm sorry, it does. Just like having that road so close by, not only does it create loads of traffic by people slowing down, going to see it, um, but the noise and the sort of, you know, you can't really imagine your sort of, um, you know, communing with Arthur or, or whatever you want to be doing um, if you've got people hooting away and swooshing past in their cars. So something probably does need to be done. But now Stonehenge has become an emblem of, you know, the how we need to defend it against the encroachment of man and um, an encroachment of roads and the encroachment of you know we're trying to get it back somehow to its somehow it's, it's more sort of original uh, freedom so in a way it's become something of a kind of climate change symbol if you see what I mean in that um, uh, you know how do we preserve our heritage um, how do we not allow modernity to encroach upon this um, uh, precious uh, uh, ancient uh, ancient object so it's meant all sorts of things to all sorts of uh, different people I mean perhaps my favorite description and as good as any is the one that Samuel Pepys did when he um, he went to see it and he just simply said God knows what their use was <laughs> oh fair enough it's a really interesting thought that um, the stones even today are now reflecting the biggest debates in our society about climate change um, and that perhaps that's what they will do forever is, is be a symbol of the society that's living with them at the time. Thank you so much, Samir, for joining um, me and talking about Stonehenge today. Thanks for asking the questions. And that's all from us. Thank you so much, Samir, for joining us and thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new Prospect magazine, available on newsstands now. Or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe, where you can get three issues for just £5. Our latest issue features writing from Emily Maitlis, Alex von Tunzelman and Adam Bolton. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect podcast next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.